Ladies and gentlemen, we're glad you're here. This is our special program series from Accessible World. And once again, we're going to talk about part three of Railroading in America, or the Railroad in America, and we're so pleased to welcome Ira Fistel. And Ira, we hope that every day makes you better and better from your long illness. So welcome. <laughs> well, I'll try to be better and better, but <laughs> I don't guarantee anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, the program is yours. <laughs> anyway, uh, you want me to start right now? Yes, why don't you, please? Okay, because I thought we were a minute or two early. That's okay. Anyhow, all right, I'm going to start where we left off, uh, what is it, two months ago? <laughs> no, been a while. Um, in the 1840s, there was a lot of railroad construction done. Uh, railroads began really in 1929 in England, and in America shortly afterwards, uh, 1829, 1831, uh, 1830s, 18, early 1830s. Uh, but the, uh, the financial panic of 1837 stopped virtually all construction for several years, and it didn't resume until after 1840. But between 1840 and 1850, a lot of miles of rails were laid. And between 1850 and 1860, the railroad became uh, absolutely everywhere. Um, in the 1850s, the first lines had been conceived of as feeders to steamboats primarily. Um, they were not considered as part of a national network. There was no national network that early. Uh, cities built their own lines. Baltimore built uh, B&O. Uh, Pennsylvania built uh, Philadelphia built Pennsylvania. That's four forerunners anyway. Uh, Charleston, South Carolina built its own railroad, the, the uh, South Carolina Railroad. But most of those early lines were conceived of as feeders to either cities or waterways or both. But by the 1850s, railroads had begun to become uh, a network. Uh, lines were built connecting with other lines. The classic example of this is the Illinois Central, which was chartered by the state of Illinois in, I believe, 1852, something like that. And it was to build from Cairo, where the Ohio River and the Mississippi River come together, straight up the middle of Illinois and on to Galena in the northwest corner of the state where the lead mines were. And it was conceived of as a feeder for steamboat traffic on the Ohio and the Mississippi. But while they were building the Illinois Central and that so-called main line, the railroads from the east, the Michigan Central first and shortly after that others, reached Chicago and offered an all-railway to the east. And that meant that farmers and business people in, uh, in the West could ship directly by rail to the biggest cities in the country on the East Coast. And that, of course, was New York and then Philadelphia and a little less Baltimore and Boston and all those big, big markets in the East. So that the Illinois Central 
began to build a branch from Centralia, Illinois, which is called Centralia because it was on the central, uh, from Centralia to that town on the western shore of Lake Michigan, which became known as that toddler town, Chicago. And Chicago has been the great rail center of North America ever since the 1850s. It's obvious why, if you look at the map. Chicago is about one-third of the way across the continent, but it is the furthest west you can go, uh, almost the furthest west you can go by water from the east coast. Uh, you can do it a little further if you go up north and uh, to Lake Superior and get down to uh, Duluth, but that's a much smaller population area and much further north. Chicago was the obvious place where the east met the west and the north met the south. And it became the great crossroads of America, and to this day, it still is. So that's the way the railroads developed in the 1850s. But meanwhile, something was happening that was going to change everything. And it happened at Sutter's Mill up near Sacramento, California, when uh, I believe his name was James Marshall, discovered some gold nuggets. Well, the story got around, and the President of the United States, James K. Polk, heard about it, and it is issued in his 1848 State of the Union message. He issued the, the uh, clarion call that gold had been discovered in California. And, of course, it started the gigantic California gold rush. Everybody wanted some gold. Um, few people got it. <laughs> a few did. But the thing was that California all of a sudden had a reasonably large population. And California applied for admission to the Union as, uh, I believe it was, the 31st state. You may, somebody may correct me on that, but I think California was number 31. Up until then, there had been an even balance of northern states and southern states, basically of free states and slave states. And since the Missouri Compromise of 1820, every time a free state came in, a slave state came in to, bal to uh, balance it. The reason for that was that the Southerners had thought that they would control the government of the country from the time the Constitution was accepted in 1787. Uh, that was one reason why, and the big reason why, the three-fifths rule was included in the Constitution. The three-fifths rule allowed the Southern slave states to count three-fifths of their slaves as if they had been voting white people. And that, of course, increased the voting power of the southern, the southern states in the House of Representatives. And they figured that with the help of the three-fifths rule, they will have perpetual control of the House of Representatives. And the Senate uh, happened to come out with uh, seven free and six slave states before the Constitution. And afterwards, there were seven... Let's see, eight and eight. Eight and eight. So um, 
the control of the House, was, the Southerners thought was going to be their check on the federal government. But something happened, and that something was immigrants in large number began coming across the Atlantic Ocean and coming to the New World. The Southerners figured, all right, uh, that's fine. No, nobody's going to want to go up in the north. It's so cold up there. They don't want to go there. Uh, we'll still have our majority in the House indefinitely. Indefinitely didn't even last past 1800 because immigrants coming to America often wanted to get paid. And it's pretty tough to earn money when you're competing with people who are not paid. So slave labor was a, uh, you know, a benefit to the South in one way, economically, but in another way, it was a detriment because it deterred immigration to the South. And by 1800, the Southerners had already lost control of the House and would never get it back. So that meant that with an even balance in the Senate, they still had a veto, but they also had a permanent loss in the House to the free states in the North. And the president was the third branch, the executive branch. The presidency was dominated by Southerners or people with uh, Northerners with Southern principles who were called doe faces by the people in the North who didn't like it. All right. Oh, boy. What? Somebody said something. Oh, anyway, I'm just going to go on. You're fine, I, Rick. Just keep going. Yeah, okay. Um, no so, <laughs> in 1849, California uh, applies for admission to the Union. Well, that was fine for California, but it wasn't fine for the Missouri Compromise, because the Missouri Compromise had meant that a slave state came in for each free state. But when California wanted to come into the Union, there was no territory left that was a, uh, that would be um, useful for, for slave labor. And the Southerners uh, were very upset about this because the Missouri Compromise had been one of their bulwarks against the more populous and faster-growing North. Well, at this point, we reach into the uh, area of politics. California was too big to ignore and too important to ignore with the gold fields. And so California had strong reasons for coming into the Union. And there was no southern state ready to come in with it. The Southerners had to make do with an extension of the Fugitive Slave Law, which, of course, they were very anxious to have because they didn't want their slaves going north of freedom. But that extension of the Fugitive Slave Law turned out to be one of the reasons why the North went to the, was ready to fight the Civil War ten years later. And the, the um, repeal of the Missouri Compromise, well, that's coming in a, in a few more years. I'll get to that in just a minute. But the uh, California coming in ended the, the Southerners' reliance on the Senate as, their, as a bulwark against the North. They lost control of the House. Now they lose control of the Senate. 
And the last thing left was control of the presidency. So you'll find in 1848, you get a Southerner named as president. In 1852, you get a Northerner, Franklin Pierce, elected president. But also, Franklin Pierce was a doe face. He may have come from Maine and gone to school in New Hampshire and was a New Englander from the ground up. But he had no, uh, let's see, no argument, shall we say, with slavery. Um, and when he came to office, he brought with him a cabinet that included a number of Southerners and Southern ideas. His Secretary of War was a man whose name you've probably heard before, but you probably don't realize how important he was in the Pierce cabinet. His name was Jefferson Davis, later, of course, to be senator from Mississippi and president of the Confederate States. Jefferson Davis was always a spokesperson and an advocate of Southern interests. And Southern interests, of course, were slave interests. And he came to office in the Franklin Pierce cabinet of 1852. Right about this time, uh, railroads were beginning to push west from Chicago into the uh, Middle Western territories and into Illinois and uh, later, a little bit later, into Iowa. Uh, and this was a time of expansion reaching west. And any fool could see that the further west the railroads went, the faster the west would be settled. Obviously, uh, when you had rail transportation, it was a lot easier to get there and a lot easier to ship things in and ship things out. The steamboat interests were also very, very, um, shall we say, unhappy with the expansion of the railroads to the West because it threatened their business. And so when the Chicago and Rock Island Railroad was built, west from Chicago about 1852. It reached Rock Island on the Mississippi River and decided that across the river was Iowa, great growing, you know, growing territory, the, uh, one of the principal uh, farming states in the country to this day. And so the Rock Island Railroad decided that they were going to bridge the Mississippi River and go across into Iowa. The bridge took some time to build, and it uh, was just abhorred by the steamboat owners who figured, oh my God, if they get away with this, uh, steamboating is not going to be the same. So they cooked up an answer. They took an old steamboat called the Effie Afton, and they ran the Effie Afton into the bridge deliberately and knocked the bridge down. And then they went to court and got uh, with the argument that the bridge was a hazard to navigation and that railroads should not be allowed to bridge navigable waters. This was one of the most important legal cases the Supreme Court had handled up to this time. And who did the Rock Island Line hire as its principal attorney? 
You may have heard his name. A fellow by the name of Abe Lincoln from Springfield, Illinois, who had uh, built up a pretty good law practice and was known as the best lawyer in Illinois. And the railroad hired him to fight the steamboaters and argue before the Supreme Court the case for building a bridge across the Mississippi at uh, Rock Island. Lincoln didn't finish with the case, but he did do a lot of work on it and was the principal attorney on it as long as he worked for the company. And it was largely owing to his work that the Supreme Court eventually decided that railroads could bridge navigable waterways. Uh, there were certain conditions about how big the bridge had to be and how, what, you know, how uh, it, it could be arranged to uh, minimize the uh, hazards to water traffic. But the thing was that the railroad won. And that opened up the whole Western Territory. All right. It is now 1854. Um, Let's let's take it back two years, 1852. Already in 1852, there was started to be agitation to build a railroad to California. California was now a state. However, California was a long way away. It was a huge undertaking. And nobody had thought that there ever would be more than one railway to the Pacific. And obviously, if there was only going to be one, the area of the country from which it started was going to be the dominant area of the country. The Southerners wanted the railroad to begin in New Orleans or Memphis, two principal southern cities, New Orleans a great ocean port, Memphis a great river port. But the Northerners answered, uh, look at your survey. Southerners had arranged a survey which ran through a piece of Mexican territory south of the Gila River in Arizona. And the Northerners said, what? You're going to build a railroad through Mexican territory? The hell you will. If we're going to build a railroad, it's going to be an all-American railroad, right? So that was their big argument against the Southern Pacific Railway. Meanwhile... Jefferson Davis was watching all this, and he realized that the Gadsden purchased that the Gadsden. Well, I should I shouldn't call it by that name yet. Let's say the Gila River Territory um, was a hazard to his plans to get the one and only transcontinental railroad to start in the South. And so, the Secretary of War Pierce. Not, I'm sorry, not the, Sec- the Secretary of War, Jefferson Davis, not Pierce himself. Jefferson Davis sent a senator from Alabama whose name was James Gadsden to Mexico to arrange for the purchase of that piece of territory south of the Gila River through which the survey ran. And Gadsden was successful, and in 1853, the Gadsden purchase was made and added that territory to the United States. It was probably the smallest addition of territory we have had, and it was done for one reason and one reason only, to protect the Southern Survey. All right, now it's 1854, and in answer to the Gadsden Purchase, up steps Stephen A. Douglas. Stephen Douglas had been born in Vermont, but he moved to Chicago as a young man, 
He owned property in Chicago, and he was a big booster of the city, and he was a senator from Illinois. Uh, You remember that uh, Douglas was the man who debated Lincoln in the 1860 presidential elections. Well, uh, Douglas had been a senator from Illinois for several years then, and he was bound to determine that he was going to get the Pacific Railroad the only one, remember, that people thought would ever be built to start in Chicago or with connections from Chicago. So the hazard there was that the line would go through the Nebraska Territory, which was a, a Indian, you know, Indians. Nobody lived out there. No whites lived out there. It was Indians, and it was combined with what is now Kansas. The big rap was, what will happen when people get out there? Will Nebraska territory be a free territory, or will slavery be permitted? The Missouri Compromise of 1820 prohibited slavery north of the latitude 36 degrees and 30 minutes, except in Missouri itself. Part of Missouri is north of that line. But... The 36-degree, 30-minutes line have been extended all the way to California, and slavery was prohibited above that latitude by the Missouri Compromise. Well, that was a problem because uh, if slavery is prohibited, uh, then the Southerners aren't going to go for uh, you know anything that you know that uh, where they can't send slaves. So the Southerners opposed the Union proposal, the Douglas proposal, for a northern line, a central Pacific, if you like, on the grounds that uh, the Kansas Territory and Nebraska Territory was unsettled and unfit. So Douglas came up with an answer. He proposed dividing Nebraska and Kansas into two territories. The Nebraska Territory in the north would be slave-free. It would be a free territory automatically. But in Kansas, Douglas proposed, let the people who go to Kansas, let the people who move to Kansas, decide by themselves whether it's going to be free or slave. He called it popular sovereignty. But in order to do this, he had to repeal that provision of the Missouri Compromise that prohibited slavery above the 36-degree, 30-minute line. That meant, in other words, that slave territory could be extended further north in Kansas. And the abolitionists in the north and people opposed to slavery had apoplexy. This is what the 1856 election was all about. And it was about, and, and all of it, uh, after the, the uh, Kansas-Nebraska Act was adopted, uh, it was a fight to get it through Congress. It, the Northerners largely opposed it. The Southerners largely approved it. The President Pierce was a Northerner, but he was in the Democratic Party, and he sympathized with the South. And he did a lot of arm twisting. And, of course, uh, the President has some powers to uh, control his own party, and he was able to get the Kansas-Nebraska Act adopted by a small majority, 
and Kansas was now a popular sovereignty territory. The result was, of course, that people kept went rushing into Kansas, either Northerners rushing in to prevent it from voting for slavery, and Southerners rushing in to get it to vote for slavery. And in 1857, Kansas had an election. However, the election was sort of tainted because the the um, Northern people, the Northerners, boycotted it. They wouldn't vote in it because they felt it was unconstitutional and that it was crooked. The 1850 50, uh, Lecompton Constitution that came out of that vote provided that Kansas could be a slave state. But the Northerners kept moving in with their people, and you've probably heard the name of one of their leaders. He was a guy by the name of John Brown, who was an anti-slavery, uh, what would you say, uh, extremist, <laughs> who with his sons moved into Kansas and uh, retaliated for the Southerners burning the town of Lawrence, Kansas, which had been founded by Amos Lawrence from Massachusetts as a uh, northern community opposed to slavery. And it is today the only really liberal city in Kansas, Lawrence, Kansas. Lawrence was sacked by a group of southern sympathizers. And in return, John Brown and his sons attacked some southerners and killed five or six of them. It was called Bleeding Kansas, and it was the prelude to the Civil War. And it was all over the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which in its turn was over the survey for the Northern Railway Line, the Central Railway Line. That survey was controversial in another way. It was carried out by General, uh, I don't know if he was general at that time, but he was at, at the time he did the survey, uh, Grenville Dodge, who came from Cedar Rapids, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Council Bluffs, Council Bluffs, Iowa. And he became a Union general in the Civil War, was quite successful, and he was an engineer. Now, generally, <laughs> that's a good pun, generally, officers in the Army were the only available engineers. They learned engineering in order to build fortifications. But nobody else was teaching engineering. So good engineers were sought by railroads, and the only place to find them was generally in the Army. So Grenville Dodge was named a general uh, during the war, and I think even before the war, and he was entitled, he was uh, hired, rather, to do a survey of where that line should go, the northern line, the uh, what is the, what came to be known as the Union Pacific. His survey took it west from his hometown, Council Bluffs, Iowa. His house is still there. You can visit his uh, mansion in Council Bluffs. Across the Missouri River and through the Nebraska Territory, following the line of the Platte River. And then the Platte divides at North Platte, Nebraska, and there's a North Platte and a South Platte. He went over both grounds. The South Platte River leads into the town of Denver, which was already founded. There had been a gold discovery in Denver, uh, and this was about 1859, and uh, Denver was already on the map. But west of Denver, 
the Rocky Mountains are extremely steep and extremely high. Renville Dodge ran the survey through the Rockies, got caught in a monster snowstorm, and decided on the spot this is no place for a railroad. So he went back and followed the North Platte River into Wyoming. And in Wyoming, the Rockies are much less steep and 4,000 or so feet lower. And Raj ran the Pacific Railroad Survey through Wyoming, absolutely missing Denver by something like 75 miles. The people in Denver were absolutely hornswoggled. They couldn't believe it. You know, what? You're, you're leaving out the only big settlement between the Missouri River and California? And you're taking the railroad away from us? So uh, Denver people were not happy. But in, in time, Dodge's survey proved to be absolutely the right one. Today, the Union Pacific is the most powerful railroad in America and one of the two or three biggest and has the bulk of the Pacific travel, Pacific traffic uh, going from San Francisco Bay to the Midwest. And it, it eventually absorbed the Chicago and Northwestern and uh, now goes all the way into Chicago itself. Well, the Union Pacific follows Dodge's survey and has been the Union Pacific ever since it was chartered in 1862 as part of the Pacific Railroad. Now, so here we have the way railroad politics helped divide the country and set the stage for the American Civil War. Because everybody thought, you know, if there was one railroad to the Pacific Coast, there'd never be another one. Next thing, what gauge would the Pacific Railroad have? As I think I mentioned uh, previously, in the south, most railroads were built to the gauge of five feet between the rails because they weren't intended to connect with anybody else. So they were built to, to a predominantly southern gauge of five feet. But in the north, almost all of the main railroads, with a few exceptions, were built to the former, uh, what is called today the standard gauge, the four foot eight and a half inch gauge, which was at that time called the Stevenson gauge. Because if you'll remember, Robert Stevenson and his uh, father George were the engineers who built the first railroad in England, and some of the first railroads, and they used the gauge of the old Roman chariots, which had made ruts in the road four feet eight and a half inches wide. That was wide enough for a horse to pull a wagon. And so that became the gauge of the Roman roads and eventually of roads in America and then of railroads in the northern part of America. So you have a northern gauge, four feet, eight and a half inches, which is today the standard gauge of North America and of Western Europe for that matter. Uh, with uh, one exception, I think Spain was the, Spain and Portugal were the major exceptions in Western Europe. Um, but elsewhere in Europe, it's different. Uh, east of Poland and Russia, the gauge is five feet, and that's a story and a half. This is one of my favorite stories of all time. 
I mentioned that army officers were the often the builders, uh, engineers were hired to build railroads. And one of those army officers was a man named George Washington Whistler. George Washington Whistler was a engineer officer who was hired by the Tsar of Russia to build the first railway in Russia, which was to, to run in an absolutely straight line, the Tsar wasn't fooling around, from Moscow to St. Petersburg. Well, it turned out to be pretty close to a straight line. And if you look at it a map today, you still see it. But it wasn't exactly straight. It did have some curves in it, dodges. But George Washington Whistler's main job was to build that railroad for the Tsar. And, of course, being an American Southerner, he was familiar with the five-foot gauge. And when he ordered the uh, construction under the Tsar of the first Russian railway, he built it to the American Southern gauge of five feet, which means that ever since the first railway was built in Russia, Russia has been isolated by rail from Western Europe, because Western Europe is all four feet, eight and a half, except Spain. So that was one means, one really big difference between Russia and the West, and why Russia grew uh, much less Western influence than it otherwise might have had. And when Russia took over Poland, it changed the gauge of the Polish railways from four feet eight and a half to five feet, so that the border was changed to where Germany and Poland came together instead of where Poland and Russia came together. These days, They've done some things to uh, resolve that, but the gauges were never changed. What they did was to make uh, uh, ways of uh, either adjusting the wheels or uh, putting uh, new different standard, different uh, wheel sets under the cars, uh, changing the wheel sets, and that's the way it works today. But George Washington Whistler is a man whose name you should never forget. You probably don't know his wife's name, but you sure know about her. She was Whistler's mother, oh. George Whistler's wife, and the mother of the American painter, James Abbott McNeil Whistler, who painted his mother and called it, uh, what is it, uh, something of North in uh, black and gray, and it's popularly known as Whistler's mother. So now you know who Whistler's mother was, and you know who Whistler's father was, too. <laughs> I love that story. All right. So now you have a gauge problem. If the Southern Pacific Railroad were to be built, it would be built a five-foot gauge because it would be connecting with the railroads in the south. And that would shut all northern traffic out of the, of the California market. Boy, the Southerners like that idea. But we're not through yet with Stephen Douglas and the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Douglas was bound and determined that he was going to get that line to start in Illinois. In, if not in Chicago itself, from the uh, Mississippi River uh, and the Iowa extensions of the Chicago railways, which were, of course, four foot eight and a half inch. Uh, the first one out there was the Galena and Chicago Union, which became eventually part of the Chicago and Northwestern. 
And the Chicago and Northwestern lasted from about 1860, oh, about 1865, something like that, all the way until 1980-something when the Union Pacific finally took it over. And it was part of the principal route from Chicago to California. So now we have Douglas lobbying for the Kansas-Nebraska Act, getting it passed, and now lobbying for a railroad to be built to the Pacific, starting with the property he owned in Chicago. And since he was a senator from Illinois and a leading Democrat in the Senate, you know, he beat Lincoln in the 1858 senatorial election. Uh, Lincoln didn't win the election. He won the debates, but he lost the election. And uh, Douglas lobbied in Washington and had a great deal of influence. He didn't live to see the Pacific Railroad Bill passed, but he had a heck of a lot to do with getting it written. As long as the Confederates stayed in the Union, Southern states stayed in the Union, Congress was handicapped because the Southern representatives had enough strength to veto pretty much anything, even if they couldn't pass a lot. But after Fort Sumter, South Carolina first, and then 10 other Southern states tumbled into secession, pulled their representatives out of Washington, claiming they weren't part of the United States anymore. Congress was now in the hands of the Republicans who were all from the North. There wasn't a single Republican representative or senator from the southern states. And that meant that they were solely interested in their home interests of their home territories and home states. And so it came to pass that in 1862, the Republican Congress passed one of the numerous pieces of extremely important legislation that changed America for the rest of the American history. One of those bills was the Homestead Act, which allowed people to go into the West on, on the federal lands and live on the lands and cultivate the lands for five years, and then they'd own the land. They called it Vote Yourself a Farm, and a lot of people did it. Homesteading wasn't always that successful, and a lot of people were not very happy being out there on the prairie with nothing much to do and no place to go. And uh, you probably read books about what life was like for early homesteaders. But Homestead Act was a huge, huge thing. Second was the Land Grant College Act. The war began with only the U.S. Military Academy and U.S. Naval Academy producing officers. And they knew they would need a lot more officers than two schools could uh, produce, especially when one of them was training naval officers. So the Land-Grant College uh, Act was passed, which provided that federal lands were uh, surveyed according to the uh, 36 sections uh, the uh, six square miles by six square miles that is standard in the North and the rest of the nation today. It's still standard. It's one of the main reasons for not transferring to the uh, metric system because all the land boundaries and all the property boundaries would all be crazy. So uh, that's one of the main reasons why this country should and never will 
convert to the metric system. It would be the cost would be astronomical, and besides, nobody would be able to figure it out anyhow. <laughs> so anyway, uh, the land grant college act provided that states would be able to take sections of federal land they were offered, and they would take these sections and sell the land, and with the proceeds, begin colleges that would teach agriculture and military science. Agriculture and military science. A&M. Now, most of the A&Ms, except Texas A&M, are now state Michigan State was the first one. It was really Michigan A&M originally, and it was the first land-grant college. Michigan A&M now is Michigan State University. But there are lots and lots of A&Ms. Colorado has an, had an A&M. It's now Colorado State. I believe New Mexico had an A&M. It's now New Mexico State. Uh, many of the schools that are now called you know, State State instead of State U were land-grant colleges. And the Land-Grant College Act was a huge, huge pro-Northern thing. Other things that the Northern Congress passed, because the Confederates were out of it, had high tariffs. High tariffs to protect industry in the North from competition from, the, from foreign countries. The Southerners did most of their trading with uh, Europe before the war, and during the war, they certainly weren't going to go north to do any business with the Yankees. So the northern industries obtained strong protection tariffs against competition from Europe and elsewhere. And then there was the Land-Grant Railroad Act. Now, the big question was, there's nobody, no settlements outside of Denver, which the railroad wasn't going to go to, practically no settlements at all until you got to Salt Lake. All across those hundreds of miles of territory. So how do you afford to build a railroad through territory where there's nobody living? Well, the answer was dual. The land-grant college... I'm sorry, they took a cue from the Land-Grant College Act. They gave the states land grants along the, well, they didn't give it to the states in this case, they gave it to the railroads, uh, along the right-of-way, alternate sections on each side of the right-of-way, which the railroads could sell, use the money that they got for the land to build the railroad or help build the railroad, and at the same time, get people to settle on those lands who would be customers for the railroads and shippers for the railroad. So the land grants were adopted in 1862, and not only was the original Transcontinental Railroad built with land grants, but many of the other Western railroads were. Uh, the only one that I can think of now, immediately, that I know never had a land grant was the Great Northern which is now part of the BNSF system. Uh, Great Northern was built by a Canadian, James J. Hill, and it was built private, entirely with private capital. All right, but anyway, that's how the financing began for the, the Pacific Railroad. Mr. Lincoln wasn't done with the Pacific Railroad yet, however. Under the Land-Grant Railroad Act, the president, as his chief executive, 
was was empowered to choose the starting place, the gauge, and the profile, the grades of that railroad that uh, the federal government was about to finance. And Lincoln chose General Dodge's hometown, which was uh, right across the river from Omaha, Nebraska. It's called Council Bluffs to this day. And Council Bluffs was near enough to Chicago that there were no fewer than six railroads built between Chicago and Council Bluffs, all of them in order to share the traffic that they figured would be coming from the far west on the Union Pacific. Of those six lines, five of them are still in operation, although they're not under the same you know, not under the same op- operations and the same owners. But uh, there still are five of them running. Okay, that's one. Second thing, Lincoln, in addition to designating Council Bluffs as the starting point, designated the northern four foot eight and a half inch gauge as the gauge for the Pacific Railroad which meant that immediately all of the Southern Railroads with their five-foot gauges were unable to exchange cars and, uh, and locomotives with the Pacific Railroad. They were shut out, just like uh, the Russians shut out Western Europe. And third... Lincoln was empowered to choose how steep the railroad could be. He chose the gradient of the Baltimore and Ohio, which I'm not positive, but I think was 2.6%. What that means is how steep the railroad is in terms of how many feet in a mile it can climb. It is generally considered that the maximum climb for a standard gauge railroad, and this is a maximum, it's uh, not usually uh, used, was 4%. That meant 200 and, what is 260 feet to a mile? 280 feet to a mile. 280 feet to a mile. If the railroad was to climb 280 feet in a mile, you would say it had a 4% grade because 5,280 feet times 4%, if I'm not mistaken, gives you 280 feet. Just to tell you, figure out how steep that is, a train of about, I think, 20 cars would have the engine 40, what is it, 30, 20 feet higher than the, uh, the, than the caboose? That's very steep. And then, you know, of course, you have to come downgrade. And when you don't have uh, powerful braking systems, going downgrade is almost worse than going upgrade. So Lincoln shows the gradient of the Baltimore and Ohio, the longest and probably best engineered of the Eastern Railroads at the beginning, which I think was 2.6%. Somebody will correct me on that someday. So Mr. Lincoln had a lot to do with the construction and the uh, development of the Pacific Railroad. Once the Pacific Railroad was built, the whole, uh, what was, what would you say, the whole uh, thinking of the country was changed. Originally, if you look at the map of the United States, you find the Appalachian Mountains wall the seacoast off f- 
from the Ohio, Mississippi, Missouri Valley. The Rockies wall off that valley from the Great Salt Lake areas and uh, the Great Plains area. And the Sierras wall off that from California, uh, most of California, the coast. You would think then that with France, England, Spain, Russia, and some other countries all wanting to put colonies in America, that you would wind up with a country that had an English-speaking East Coast, a French-speaking country in the middle, a Spanish-speaking country in the Southwest, and maybe in California, and perhaps even a Russian-speaking country in the north of California. It didn't turn out that way. And the main reason it didn't was because of the power of steam. First, as applied to steamboats, beginning in 1803, and then beginning in 1829, as applied to railroads. What the steam engine did was to change the axis of America from north-south, the way the mountains go and the way the Mississippi Valley goes, to east-west, disregarding the mountains because the railroads could climb over or dive under them. And so, traditionally, since the 1850s, American uh, freight and passenger traffic is much heavier east-west than north-south. And there are really only four main north-south corridors in the whole United States. One is the East Coast Corridor from Boston down to Florida. One is the Central Corridor from Chicago down to New Orleans. One is the Rocky Mountain Corridor, which runs from Montana down into Texas. And the fourth one, of course, the Pacific Coast Corridor. And those are the four. There aren't any others. They are the four main north-south routes in North America. Only four. Whereas the east-west routes are myriad. There are currently, I believe it is six major lines uh, across the United States, plus two more competing by crossing Canada. So there are eight transcontinental lines across east-west but only four north-south. And the transcontinental east-west lines carry far more traffic, far more than the north-south lines. In fact, one of the north-south lines has been bought by the Canadian National Railway as a way that uh, to get its trains uh, from Canada, loaded with grain and oil and whatever else Canada is shipping, to the port of New Orleans. And also, to dip down below Lake Michigan, connect with all the American railroads in Chicago, and then go back up into Toronto, avoiding the trip around the top of Lake Superior, which is very cold and has nothing but wheat. So the Canadian National now is a major American as well as Canadian railroad. Uh, it's just fascinating stuff. Absolutely fascinating. All right, let's talk about the building of the transcontinental, the first transcontinental railway. We mentioned the land grants were part of its financing, but that obviously was not enough. The roots of that line 
uh, we mentioned Douglas and his idea. And in the West Coast, a man named Theodore Judah. Theodore Judah is one of those people who deserves to be recognized a lot more than he than he is today. Uh, in his own time, they called him Crazy Judah. But he had planned to, for a Pacific Railroad to be built from Sacramento over the Sierras into Nevada and on into Utah and so far to the east. Mr. Judah was laughed at, but he went to Congress and he got some money and he ran a survey through the Sierras and in 1861 or two, something like that, just shortly before he died, he was named an official of a company that was formed to build that railroad. The company was called the Central Pacific because it was going to be built in the central part of the country. It was to start in Sacramento and follow Judah's survey. And the people who were the chief executives were, everybody in California history knows this, the big four, Collis P. Huntington, Charles Crocker, Leland Stanford, and Mark Hopkins. Those four men with Judah's survey were the people who put the, the uh, Central Pacific across. Uh, they lobbied Congress for money. They got a subsidy of $16,000 a mile, except that when it was mountain mileage, it was up to $64,000 a mile. Who was there to tell you what mileage was mountains and what mileage was flat? if you're back in Washington with a map. <laughs> so uh, they put in for mountain mileage, I think from right outside Sacramento all the way east. Um, they weren't above cheating a little bit. Um, but the big four organized the financing. Leland Stanford, of course, became governor of California, it had political power. Um, Charles Crocker was named construction boss. And his major problem was, where the heck do I get the people to build this railroad? Because at the time this is all going on, the Civil War is being fought. And there's manpower is mostly in the armies in the east. Well, the construction didn't really get going till after the war, 1865. But uh, by 1866, they were hard at work at it. And the Central Pacific was short of men. Weren't enough of them. So Charlie Crocker, that's how they called him, uh, got the inspiration of importing workers from China. You wonder why San Francisco has the world's, America's rather biggest Chinatown? Well, if you can thank Charlie Crocker. Uh, he sent back to agents in China for Chinese laborers. And they came to America, they worked for something like a dollar a day, they didn't get drunk. They were wonderfully hard workers. And Crocker, realizing what he had, kept sending back for more and more and more of them. So most of the Central Pacific work, uh, much of it, maybe most of it, was done by imported immigrant labor from China. 
I wonder how much the Chinese today know about the history of uh, how the Chinese helped build America um, by building the Transcontinental Railroad. So the uh, the eastern part, the Union Pacific, was built largely with people who were laborers. And who were the uh, immigrant laborers in the largest numbers in the east? The Irish. Since the potato famine, and thousands and th- hundreds of thousands of millions of Irish emigrated from Ireland, and a couple of million of them came to America. And they kept coming right through the Civil War. It, many of them went right into the army during the war because the army would feed them. But after the war, they were looking for jobs, and most of them were unskilled, but they were good, hard workers. Uh, they drank a lot. You know, the story in Ireland is God created whiskey to keep the Irish from ruling the world. But the English, the, the Irish on the eastern part, the Union Pacific, and the Chinese in the western part, the Central Pacific, built towards each other. They started in the east from Council Bluffs, built a bridge across the Mississippi River, and worked west along the Platte, and then on into the mountain country of Wyoming, skipping Denver and Colorado, down into Utah, missing Salt Lake City by 40 miles, but close enough to be, uh, you know, to be to serve it. And of course, quickly a branch line was built to Salt Lake City, and then on west through uh, Utah and into Nevada. The Central Pacific had a tougher climb. The Sierras are very steep. That's why they're called Sierra, ragged or jagged. Um, And the Central Pacific had to climb over them at a point where they're pretty high. But they did it. Uh, Most notably at Donner Pass. Uh, Donner Pass has a famous reputation as the scene of the Donner Party uh, cannibalism, but it's probably more important geographically because it's the gateway for Interstate 40 and the uh, Union Pacific Railroad to get from the San Francisco Bay Area over the Sierras. So that was built in the 1860s. There are pictures showing... uh, workers hanging from cliffs on scaffolding uh, with uh, gunpowder blowing up rocks so that they could build a right-of-way. And if you take the Amtrak's California Zephyr today, you'll run over that line, and you do it during the daytime, and it is pretty spectacular to see. Uh, When you think that it was built with mules, chisels, picks and black powder all by hand (laughs) you wonder how they ever did it Um, but they did and in 1869 May 10th 1869 the two railroads the eastern line the Union Pacific officially met the western line the Central Pacific I say officially because actually they built past each other and going in opposite directions because the one who built the most miles got more of the uh, subsidies. The Central Pacific wanted to go all the way to Salt Lake City if they could. The Union Pacific wanted to go as far as they could into California. 
and they actually built parallel lines next to each other for a few miles before uh, the site of Promontory, Utah, was agreed on. It is not Promontory Point. Promontory Point is in the middle of Salt Lake. If you look at it on the map, you'll see that Promontory Point sticks out south from the northern shore of the lake into Great Salt Lake. Promontory Point is on the Union Pacific Main Line today because in about 1900, the line around the low shore of the lake, steep and long and out of the way, and the Southern Pacific Company, which by that time had taken over the Central Pacific, built something called the Lucent Cutoff, which goes right straight across Salt Lake. And I've been on it, and I have a story about that. I'll tell you perhaps a little later. Uh, but the Lucent cut, Cutoff shortened the line around Promontory Point by a number of miles and reduced grades and curvature, and has been the main line ever since. So today, the Union Pacific Main Line goes through Promontory Point. But it went to Promontory, not Promontory Point in the first place. The uh, National Monument, where the two lines came together, is on the North Shore at Promontory. And there are models of the two locomotives that met on May 10, 1869. The Central Pacific Locomotive Jupiter which was a wooden, wood-burning, wide-stack locomotive with uh, the wide stack having a spark arresters in it to kept, capture the uh, sparks from the wood that it burned, and a narrow-stacked locomotive called the 110, I think it is. Um, and anyway, those were the two locomotives who touched pilots, and Leland Stanford was to drive the Golden Spike, except he missed. <laughs> he swung the hammer and missed the spike altogether. <laughs> it's one of the great stories. Um, the spike was connected by telegraph with the whole country. And so somebody had to drive the spike. But when Stanford missed, somebody else jumped in and drove the spike, and the telegraph said, finished, all over the country. Actually, it had been finished a little bit sooner, but, <laughs> but Mr. Stanford missed, the, missed his target. Oh, there's so many stories. Well, when the Transcontinental Railroad was built, it was 1869. They did not anticipate that there would ever be another one. There was by 1883. It took only 14 years to build the second Transcontinental Railroad. And after that, there was a third and a fourth and a fifth and a sixth. And as late as 19... Nine to let's see, 1909, the last one was finished. That's the Western Pacific, which is now also part of the Union Pacific, and it was built because the Union Pacific was built to, over the Sierras with that tough grade, two point whatever it is percent, and the promoter of the the uh, Western Pacific felt that a railroad could be built that would be longer but much lower and much more efficient to operate. And he was able to get a 1% grade from San Francisco Bay all the way across the Sierras and into Salt Lake City. 1%, 52 feet to the mile. No wonder the Western Pacific has uh, you know, 
a lot of heavy traffic because it's so much lower. And on top of it, it has less curvature. However, what it doesn't have is shorter mileage. It's a good deal longer than the original route. So a lot of trains that are not terribly heavy use the Union Pacific's original route. The passenger train takes the original route. But there's a lot of traffic with heavy trains on the 1% grade of the what is now the Union Pacific Northern Line. So that's how the Transcontinental Railroad came to be built. I, I wonder, we're nearing the end here. What happened to Denver? Did Denver ever get a, a branch line or something? Yes, Denver got a branch line to the Union Pacific as early as 1870. I think, I think, I think 1868. Oh, okay. It's called the Denver Pacific, and it's still today part of the Union Pacific. But Denver is still not on that line. However, this is where David Moffat comes in. If you've ever been in Denver, uh, you've probably heard of the Moffat Tunnel. Yes. David Moffat was a Denver businessman, born in New York, came out to Colorado as a young man, went into banking and real estate, made a lot of money. But he was a very civic-minded man. He loved Denver, and he wanted the best for Denver. And one of the things he did was build railroads. And he did a lot of railroad building in Colorado and owned mines in Colorado. He was a wealthy man. In 19, I think it was 3, 1902 or 1903, Moffat was already an old man. He was, I think, in his 70s. But he decided that he was going to use his fortune to build the transcontinental railroad that Denver didn't have. And he started building west from Denver into the Rocky Mountains, right into the teeth of the highest mountains in North America. And he bankrupted himself in three years. When he died, he didn't have his fortune. Uh, some properties remain, but he, he had his, enough to, to leave his wife his house and, his, and her jewels. But uh, he really bankrupted himself trying to build that line across Colorado. It was the most spectacular railroad ever built in North America. It crossed the Rockies at a pass called, uh, well, 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 I'll think of it in a minute, uh, 11,000 feet over sea level, 11,000 feet above sea level. That's twice the altitude of Denver, almost. It is twice, twice the altitude of Denver. Denver's 5,000 feet. So Moffat built a line that in, that went up 5,000 feet in 50-some-odd miles. Uh, 4% grades, steep, sharp curves. Mm. Oh, amazing. You can drive over it today. I suggest that if you are not afraid of extreme mountain driving, you do it sometime. It is the most spectacular thing you ever saw. Mm. When you get to the top, you wonder, how the hell do they ever get a locomotive up here? Yeah. <laughs> it's so high that you got eagles nesting at the top of the mountain. The uh, structure that was built there had to be held down by guy ropes, guy wires, you know, because the wind would have blown it away. Mm. It snows any time from 1st of September to the end of July. You can have a blizzard in July up there. It's absolutely amazing. 
And David Moffat did it all. And as I say, bankrupted himself in the interest of Denver. Wow. Today, uh, that line kept operating through World War One, always at losses, but always because Denver wanted that outlet to the West, and there was always hope that it would somehow be completed. During the First World War, Denver needed coal, and then after the war, Denver got bigger and needed coal, and there are coal mines up in uh, north-central Colorado that are on Moffett's line. So the Moffett Road, as it was called then, uh, survived long enough for the state of Colorado to step in. There was a major flood in the southern part of the state, which almost destroyed the city of Pueblo. Pueblo had long opposed the building of a tunnel under the Rockies because they wouldn't benefit from it. It would benefit Denver. But in exchange for a flood control program, Pueblo and Colorado Springs finally agreed to support a state-financed tunnel built under James Peak in the heart of the Rockies. That, that tunnel was built over a period of four or five years, beginning about 1923, and it was completed in February 1928. The, what is it, how many years now? Uh, 1928, 82, and 16... 98 years since the completion of the tunnel, or is it 88? 88, I think. 88, I think. Oh, wait a minute. Uh Yeah, I think it's 88 years. Uh Anyway, next year, uh, two years from now, will be the 90th anniversary of the Moffat Tunnel. It's six and a half miles long, straight as a ruler, and 4,000 feet under the peak that's on top of it. And it's used today by the Union Pacific. Ironically, Almost all the Union Pacific's heavy freight trains take the original line through Wyoming. Mm-hmm. And the only regular passenger train on the, through the Moffat Tunnel is the, the California Zephyr. If you think the Sierras are spectacular, the Rockies are even more so. Mm-hmm. Uh, you owe it to yourself, if you are able to ever do it, take that train between Denver and San Francisco. Uh, it goes all the way to Chicago, but she, the spectacular part is west of Denver. Uh, it goes over the Rockies, it goes over the Winter Mountains in Utah, and it goes over the Sierras, all in daylight. Something else. I so that answers your question about you Denver. Here. Yes, you it's, on a, it's on a transcontinental. What a great but, lecture. But not, wait, the, wait. not the original one. And ironically, now Denver is served by the original Transcontinental because the Union Pacific now took over everything else. Wow. Union Pacific now runs through the Moffat Tunnel as well. I hate Union to Pacific do this, we have to stop, every... and we thank you so much. This is just great. I really got into this one. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, the and Union so Pacific... we thank you, and I will be in touch. Oh, oh is it, are we at an end? We're at an end. Oh, I have God. To oh my God, I didn't even know. <laughs> yeah, we'll keep going. Yeah, sure. I love this. I just talk and talk and talk, and I, I didn't oh, even you're look wonderful. at my watch. <laughs> and I thank you. We all thank you very, very much. Oh, thank you. I hope it was good uh, good fun for you. Okay, Next we'll time, whatever that is, uh, okay. we'll do the 1870s and 80s. All right, we'll do it. Okay, I'll talk to you soon, Bob. Okay, I will. Thank you. Well. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Okay. All right. 